On a recent Friday evening around 6 p.m., I was walking through Brooklyn when I heard this sound. It was pretty loud, kind of echoing through the entire neighborhood, and it went on for probably a minute or two. It sounded kind of like a long, drawn-out air raid siren. But when I looked around, there didn't seem to be any reason for such a loud noise. There aren't any cop cars or ambulances around, and the U.S. isn't under the threat of any air raids right now, as far as I know. And the people around me don't seem panicked. It turns out that the sirens are coming from the next neighborhood over. Geographically, it's just a few blocks away, but in culture, appearance, and tradition, it's a completely different world. I started my walk by the water in Williamsburg. Williamsburg is a neighborhood that New Yorkers know as trendy and hipster, brimming with young artists and glass-walled high-rises. It's where people play beach volleyball by the river and sip $7 coffees. But when I follow the sound of the siren, I find myself in a completely different world. It's as if I've stepped through a portal and traveled to a different point in the space-time continuum. Almost as if someone flipped a switch, the trendy young people going on Friday night dates are replaced by members of the largest ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jewish community outside of Israel. Here, men wear black coats and shtreimel, which are fur-ringed top hats. They have beards and a ringlet of hair on each side of their face. Women wear all black too, mostly, and dress modestly. Each woman wears a wig, often with a scarf or a hat on top, and most women we pass walk with a stroller or children. Unlike the chic aesthetics of hipster Williamsburg, the buildings around us are kind of dark and plain and they remind me of movies from 19th century Europe. Most of the writing around me is in Hebrew lettering, and the smatterings of conversation I hear seem to be in Yiddish. Friday is Shabbat, which is the day of rest in Judaism. Those mysterious sirens I heard? Those are actually installed on different yeshivas in Williamsburg, and they're sounded every Friday evening to announce Shabbat. To honor this day, most people in the Hasidic community share a dinner with their friends and family members. There's definitely a mood of festivity, of rest and relaxation in the air. People walk somewhat quickly on the street, passing groups of kids playing outside. Sometimes they greet each other. Inside the homes I pass, People have lit chandeliers that emanate this warm, cozy glow. Eventually, I end up on White Avenue, an elegant street that runs parallel to the river. The story that we have for you today is set in large part against this backdrop. This is the street where Abby Stein, our guest for today, grew up. This is the neighborhood where she went to school, where she was ordained as a rabbi, where she got married. This is the neighborhood she associates with her family and her childhood, but also the neighborhood where she was seen as a boy for decades. Today, Abby lives across the river in Manhattan. 
She does sexy photo shoots for Vogue, travels around the country giving speeches, and writes about Jewish history and philosophy. In this episode, I got the chance to ask Abby about how she grew into her true self despite the many obstacles that she faced coming from an ultra-Orthodox community. Welcome to People Place Power, where we explore big questions around activism through the eyes of changemakers around the world. I'm Trisha McCurgie. And I'm Benjamin Swift. This episode is about a woman with an incredible story. Her name is Abby Stein. Hi, my name is Abby Stein. I use she, her pronouns. I am a parent, activist, author, an ordained rabbi, and a girl of trans experience who likes to have fun. So Abby grew up in the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jewish area of Williamsburg. Even if you're not too familiar with the Hasidic community, you might have heard about the controversies surrounding this community in the news over the past few months, especially in a COVID context. So let's give you a picture now of what's happening right now in this city. Many of the affected neighborhoods include large, close-knit Orthodox Jewish communities. Officials have accused them of flouting masks and social distancing requirements. From news clips like those, in addition to the insulated nature and specific traditions of the Hasidic community in New York, outsiders might think it's anachronistic, anti-science, and sexist. Abby's no stranger to these views, but she pushes back against them. So you're asking me to explain the Hasidic community in Williamsburg and how they might be different from the rest of the world. And... To be honest, to really answer this, I would have to not just spend the entire podcast time just on this. I would need a whole season to even start answering the question. So obviously, and I think it's important for me to say that because I am a big fan of not oversimplifying things, specifically not people. It's not that Abby accepts and embraces every facet of the community. Of course, there's a reason that she left the Hasidic community in Williamsburg for the totally unknown world beyond. But as I worked on this episode, I reminded myself of Abby's sentiment. Every community has their good parts and their bad parts, and the Hasidic community is no different. And maybe even more common kind of simplified way of describing them is a very, like, demonizing way, which is very easy, quite frankly, and obviously I agree personally that the negative parts of the community as it is outweigh the positive parts by the simple fact that I left because of that. But it's important for me to realize that it's not all good, it's not all bad, just like everyone else, they're humans, they are people. It's easy for outsiders to judge the Hasidic community. The strict dress code, families with half a dozen children, gender segregation, All of these outward-facing markers of Hasidic Jews might seem outdated in the middle of a city as progressive as New York. But these traditions are actually reactions to the immense generational trauma that Hasidic Jews have experienced. It's not just outsiders who react with wariness to Hasidic Jews. Abby tells me that people in the Hasidic community see the outside world in a similar way. We were always told there was like a two-sided relationship with the outside world. One is that they're all evil and kind of we are supposed to not like them. And also that everyone hates us and everyone wants to kill us. And if you don't believe us, look on the Holocaust. 
The Hasidic community in Williamsburg actually originated as a reaction to the Holocaust. Into the mid-1900s, Jews in Europe lived in towns, or shtetls, in Yiddish. Shtetls usually had organized Yiddish-speaking Jewish communities with their own synagogues, libraries, and schools. But over the 20th century, especially during World War II and the Nazi regime, shtetls were cruelly destroyed. Many residents were brought to the concentration camps and watched their families and friends be taken away or killed. To the European Jews who survived this genocide, the world seemed hard to trust. The Holocaust wasn't the first time Jews were targeted for their religion, and why should they have any reason to think that it would be the last? So many Holocaust survivors fled to New York, where they started a new life in Williamsburg, attempting to imitate the shtetls they called home. In my school, I was actually unique because only three of my grandparents were Holocaust survivors because my grandmother was born and lived in Jerusalem where the Nazis never got there. So um, most of my friends had all of their four grandparents or people that were part of the fourth generation sometimes had all eight grandparents were Holocaust survivors. This is why Hasidic people largely stick to themselves. This is why clothing is antiquated. It's meant to replicate the shtetls of the 1900s. This is why they focus on giving life to their children. It's an attempt to compensate for the six million Jews killed during the Holocaust. But this is also what led to the problems Abby had while growing up in Hasidic Williamsburg. It's this hypothetical religious utopia or dystopia, depending on your point of view, that supposedly exists. And their entire life is about trying to recreate that. So I grew up speaking only Yiddish, and well, I also studied Hebrew and even Aramaic. For all intents and purposes, English is my fourth language, and I grew up in New York City. Even though Abby was living in the center of New York City, her surroundings resembled 19th century Hungary, where her Satmar Hasidic Jewish community originated. There were strict rules, and you were supposed to follow them. So growing up in Hasidic Williamsburg, what was life like for Abby when she was young? When I ask her this question, she responds with a long list of rules. Married women don't just cover their hair, they shave their hair. A dress or a skirt always has to be pleated, meaning you can't have a dress that's not pleated because then, God forbid, who knows, someone might see the shape of your ass. It has to be at least four inches below the knee, but it still has to be 10 inches above the ground. Uh, there's an entire list of rules about just the stockings, the tights that they wear, the color. My parents' engagement literally was hinging on the color of my mom's tights. This is not a joke. It's not a metaphor. It was literally hinging on the color of her tights. Only wear like neutral colors, so like black and navy and white. Uh, red is hardcore forbidden, but in many families like myself, even pink for anyone who's above like six, seven years old is taboo. I have eight sisters and four brothers, and we all get engaged at either 17 or 18, meaning none of us reached 19 and we're still single. In many cases, Abby's family followed these rules to an even stricter degree since they're direct descendants of the Baal Shem Tov, who was the founder of Hasidic Judaism. For context, the Baal Shem Tov was a mystic and healer. The movement he started was originally based on mysticism and joy, a rejection of asceticism, and a rejection of long-entrenched social and religious structures. Modern-day Hasidism is quite different from 18th-century Hasidism, and the rules that Abby describes are much more closely followed now. 
Many of these rules were interwoven with one theme that seems to pop up in practically every aspect of Hasidic life, gender roles. We're talking gender segregation to an extreme, but not just the gender segregation, also extremely patriarchal, where the men are fully in control. According to Abby, who says she's thoroughly researched this and has compiled an entire fact sheet about it, ultra-Orthodox Hasidism is one of the most gender-segregated societies in the world. When I was six years old, I was told to stop playing and talking to my first cousins who are being raised in the opposite gender. On the surface, Abby fit in well. She obeyed all the rules and she excelled in school and religious studies. But inside, she knew that something was wrong. My realizations wasn't necessarily that, oh, I'm a girl, but rather it was a realization that everyone else thinks that I'm a boy. Abby was raised as a boy, but always knew that she was a girl. Of course, it's never easy to be a transgender kid in the United States. But luckily in today's world, many kids have heard the word transgender or maybe even seen a trans person on TV or social media. Long before Caitlyn Jenner helped catapult the word transgender into the national Hopefully they realize that they're not the only ones going through this experience. Fighting for equality and understanding all of her life. But for Abby, this was never the case. See, in her community growing up, she had no access to outside media whatsoever. So I think it probably isn't that surprising that we didn't have access to any outside media. We did never had TV, radio, we couldn't read English, we never had outside newspapers, music, anything like that. And I think you could probably find many religious communities, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and everything else, who like maybe don't want their kids to watch certain shows or don't want them to listen to certain music. I think where we become even more intense is that I didn't even know anything about pop culture. I knew that we can't watch TV. I couldn't name you a single TV show. So take the 90s, I don't know. I don't know what were the popular uh, TV shows in the 90s, but let's take Friends or Seinfeld, arguably the most Jewish show to have ever been on air. But it wasn't like, oh, that is this really cool show that we are not allowed to watch. I was unaware that it exists. I don't know, uh, Britney Spears or the Backstreet Boys or whatever was the, the popular bands when I was growing up. It wasn't like Forbidden Music. Our Forbidden Music was a choir called the Miami Boys Choir, which is a 100% Orthodox, 100% boys choir, but they sing in English. So that was the music we were not allowed to listen to. So much of popular culture wasn't forbidden. We simply didn't know it exists. I didn't know that Halloween was a thing. I didn't know that Thanksgiving was a thing. Abby had never heard of the word transgender, but she knew what it meant because she was living it. And in some sense, it helped that her community had such clear distinctions between the role of a man and the role of a woman. Because since I, since I remember myself, I identified as a girl. I was a girl. But my family community disagreed. And on, on, in most ways, there was no way for me to explore it. I do think that, like, the very, very thin silver lining is that because it was so gender segregated, I never really struggled with it. Like, I very much knew where I felt I belonged because it was so segregated. So she resorted to her own imagination.
One day, Abby found a Jewish magazine. Inside, there was a story printed about a Navy SEAL who had converted to Orthodox Judaism. Abby read it, but what captivated her was not the conversion process or the Navy SEAL's reasoning. It was his descriptions of Navy SEAL boot camp. In her mind, Abby flew off to a faraway imaginary boot camp. But instead of a boot camp involving push-ups and weapons, Abby's imaginary boot camp was a place where you could be trained to become a girl. But Abby's real world was still vastly different from her girl boot camp dreams. In her real world, she couldn't wear dresses or grow out her hair. Instead, she grew out the curls Hasidic men have on each side of their face and wore pants and an overcoat. Things didn't just magically go back to normal, though. Around when she turned 12, Abby translated her fantasies of girl boot camp into a thirst for knowledge. Starting when I was around 12, that led me to start reading a lot of books uh, that I wasn't supposed to, which is relatively easy in a community where you're just not supposed to read anything that's not 100% okay with the community. And that led me, when I was 16, I had read uh, The God Illusion from Richard Dawkins and Who Wrote the Bible from Richard Elliot Friedman, both of them in Hebrew. I couldn't read English at the time. So Abby began questioning everything. First, that like, oh, I can't trust anyone because these people are wrong about something as existential as who I am. So why would I trust them about religion, about God, about which food is good or about which colors to wear? Everything, including the core principles she grew up with. In her head, there was a storm of thoughts and questions and uncertainty and shame. But on the outside, things still seemed normal and Abby still presented as a man. Abby got ordained as a rabbi, following in the footsteps of her rabbinic ancestors. In her late teens, her family arranged a marriage for her, and she married a woman in a big regal celebration. And soon, she had a son. But eventually there came a tipping point. Abby just couldn't live a lie anymore. And when she was 20, she told her family the truth. She didn't believe in their version of Judaism. Um, so like when I left, my father told me, um, I think it's a sickness. Um, not being religious is like having cancer. And by the time I actually left the community at 20, when I was already married and had a son, um, I didn't leave because of gender at all. I left because I didn't believe. I had many issues with their community, such as the kind of abuse, emotional and physical that they are hiding, the disregard for science, the so many problems about gender segregation, the lack of LGBTQ representation and, and, and acceptance, and so on. There was many, many reasons. But by the time I left, it wasn't just because of my gender identity. The rabbi of the community where I was studying and where I got my ordination, he came down to the like the something called the kolel, which is like the I guess school for married students, and he gave like this whole speech. He didn't mention me by name, but he gave this whole speech on how like how dangerous it is to talk to me, how no one should talk to me, how like if I dare to walk into the synagogue, no one should even kick me out because that would mean engaging with me. And just engaging with me on a spiritual level could be totally like spiritual, that whatever, like a whole like load of crap. 
She gathered her things and left the only place she had known her whole life. The place she took her first steps, the place she said her first words, the place she learned to read, became a rabbi, got married, and had a child. She barely had any knowledge of the rest of the world, but she wasn't going to look back. What Abby didn't expect was how different the world just across the Hudson River would be. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. It's like immigrating to not a new country, a new planet, and on a new, in a new time. When she left Williamsburg, Abby couldn't speak very good English. My English was like about a third grade level for non-English speakers. So like not third grade level in a public school where everyone speaks English. Third grade level, I don't know, English in Germany where no one speaks English. People were confused by her accent. They would ask where she was from, and when she said Williamsburg... They said, where are you really from? Like, your own sound, like, from New York, which is, like, stupid, because New York has, like, 700 native languages spoken there, but whatever. She had never heard of things that most of us pass by without a thought. The first time I walked into a Starbucks, I freaked out. I didn't know what to do. Restaurants and bars were totally foreign. A few times I went to a diner or restaurant, I needed to go with people to just show me, like, my family never went out to eat, even to kosher places, so I just had no idea. And the basic things most of us learn in school, Abby didn't have any of that. Math was long division, was the farthest we ever got. Like, we never went past that. So there was no, like, fractions. Forget about algebra. What is that even? And so on. And then there was no science, no history, no social studies, no reading. Like, nothing, not even a bit. Fashion was totally new and exciting. Abby was used to dressing in Hasidic men's clothing, And now she could explore new spheres of fashion. Women's clothing, bright colors, patterns, clothes that showed a little more skin. The hardest fashion choice I ever had to make was which black on black floral design I want on my long black silk coat. Abby slowly started to learn the ways of the rest of New York. She learned how to order at restaurants and got used to Starbucks. She started teaching herself English. I have... I started studying in January 2012. My first step was like listening to English courses for Hebrew speakers on YouTube. Abby was always intelligent and she wanted to continue her education beyond her rabbinical studies in Williamsburg. So she decided to get a GED and apply to college. Even this process had its fair share of struggles. When I took my test for my high school diploma, there was a math question about a deck of cards. And it assumed that you know the bare basics of what a deck of cards includes. You know, like diamonds and spades, whatever. I walk up to the um, instructor who's taking it. And, you know, during the standardized test, they're usually not super helpful in trying to help you. They were like, whatever. If you don't know it, tough luck, whatever. And I'm like, no, no, no. You have to realize I, I there's no way for me to answer this question. I have never held a deck of cards in my hand. I don't know. They were like, what do you mean? And, like, they actually, like, promised me that they're going to take out that question and never have it again for anyone. But, like, the people who made the question already in New York, they didn't think that maybe don't put in a question about a deck of cards because they're people who have never seen one in New York. Despite the question about the deck of cards, Abby passed her high school equivalency test and eventually enrolled at Columbia School of General Studies. 
That's actually where I first met Abby, at a Shabbat dinner at Columbia when we were both students there. To Abby, these Shabbat dinners were very meaningful. Growing up Hasidic brings back nostalgia too. A lot of the synesthetic moments of nostalgia stamped in her mind are associated with weekly Friday night Shabbat dinners. Friday, there was only breakfast and then there wasn't really a real lunch, but like before sunset, we had like a bit and we would eat that kind of like kugel together with um, something called farfel. And when usually when we would eat this, we would eat this sitting on the couch in the living room or in the family room while my mom or one of my sisters would wash the kitchen floor. So I eat it and as I smell, even now, as I smell the smell of the potatoes, I also smell the bleach in the kitchen. By this time, Abby had come out as transgender. Remember, the reason she left Hasidic Williamsburg wasn't just gender, it was a whole bunch of other things too. So when she left, she still presented as a man. But when I first saw Abby, she was wearing a pretty dress and her hair kind of tickled her shoulders. Leaving Williamsburg was a confusing process, to say the least. But coming out? I had no effing clue what I was getting into. It was a whole new challenge. You have to figure out social cues, social norms, because they're very different. The way you act in a men's bathroom is like radically different than a woman's bathroom, for example. Everything. Your whole experience is very different. And I know like I've experienced it on both ends. But just on top of adjusting to presenting as a woman, Abby decided to tell her family. Up until this point, they were still on talking terms. But when she came out... I was officially excommunicated. For me, it was only my family that I really lost when I came out, which was hard. Um, But I think by now, sometimes the part that bothers me most is that it maybe doesn't bother me enough that I lost my family. But... I, I, life is too good to focus on the negative parts. What Abby didn't expect was how important her story would become. I had no idea what the f- I was doing at the time. Like, I was, ne- I had never done anything public. I wasn't planning my public life. I came out, I wrote a coming out blog post on a blog that had like a few hundred hits in like a few months. And then it got 20,000 views overnight. Today, Abby lives on the Upper West Side of New York. She pours her heart and soul into cooking these mouth-watering Shabbat dinners. She's in love with her girlfriend, and she travels the world speaking to all sorts of audiences and telling her story. Right before she left for a trip to Germany, I met up with her on a Sunday evening in Midtown Manhattan. Hi. Hello. Sorry. Do you want to eat something, by the way? When I meet Abby, she's flipping through a book about gender and Judaism. I should mention that Abby loves books. Uh, almost always nonfiction, okay. never fiction. I have nothing personally against fiction. It just doesn't appeal to me that much. Oh, mate, I was just watching the show. When she goes to bookstores, she always checks if they're carrying her book, Becoming Eve, which I would highly recommend if you're interested in learning more about Abby's story. She's also written sections of several other books, and she sometimes checks on those too. Can I check if you have a book available? Sure, what do you need? It's called Trans New York. It's a book of portraits. Yes, uh, we you have, a copy? have one hardcover available. It's uh, you know Trans New we... York, Photos and Stories of Transgender yep. New Yorkers. Yep. Yeah, uh, it's, it looks like it's two floors down. If you take the escalator by the window. So the basement, so to speak. Right, it's gender Perfect, ID. I was going to, oh, okay. Perfect, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I have a random question for you. Yeah. 
Who's named as the authors? Is it just one name or two names? It's two names. Who are they? Peter uh, Busian and Abby Chavastein. Oh. <laughs> When I ask if there's books that are similar to hers, Abby says that there are barely any other openly trans people from Hasidic Jewish communities. It seems to me that Abby is the face of this movement, of trans people leaving ultra-Orthodox communities. It's still a movement that's growing, and as more and more people share their stories, more and more people will feel comfortable saying, hey, that's kind of like my story too. We don't need just allies. We don't need tolerance. Um, one of my favorite things that I love to say a lot is that I hate tolerance. Tolerance is for lactose and nuts, not for people. People we need to celebrate. And I think that is... I don't want that when a teenager comes out to their parents, the parents should be like, okay, we still love you. The reaction that we want is, oh my God, that's amazing. Let's go and celebrate. We need to realize that people are amazing and worthy of celebration, not in spite of who they are, but because of who they are. I really think, and I think it's a fact, that as people we are better off when we feel comfortable fully being who we are. We are better community members, we are better friends, we are better family members. And we need to internalize that and practice that, because then the world really would be a better place. Thanks to people like Abby, awareness of Hasidic life is becoming more and more common. Some people might attribute this to a show on Netflix called Unorthodox. The show has become really popular. In the show, a woman named Esty leaves her Hasidic community in Williamsburg after she has trouble having sex, and her husband threatens to divorce her. The Talmud says, if not me, then who? If not now, then when? A lot of it is set in Hasidic Williamsburg, and if you look closely, you'll notice something. It's not a dramatic scene, and it doesn't involve the main characters. It's a moment where you see a woman in the background dressed in a long black skirt and a blue scarf wrapped around her hair in typical Hasidic woman's clothing. That woman is Abby. When the creators of the show asked Abby if she'd like to play an extra as a Hasidic woman, she thought about it for a while and eventually accepted. The last time she was surrounded by people in Hasidic clothing, she was among them, wearing men's clothes. Now, she could be the person she dreamt of being as a child during all the daydreams of girl boot camp. She could wear the two-piece navy suit she saw her mother wearing and the colorful head coverings her sisters wore the clothing she knew she belonged in, but was forbidden to touch. She could be a Hasidic woman in a Hasidic community, if only for a day, and if only on set. As I watch her, I notice that she looks radiant. Credits. 
This podcast was created on Lenape land and supported by a Student Seed Innovation Grant from Colorado College. Andrew Dewey composed our theme music. Jesse Sheldon designed our cover art, and Nick Bluebird Lane designed our episode art. Nina Durga designed our website, and Metsi Nieves administers our social media. Blue Dot Sessions provided music. And a special thanks to Otis Gray for his comments. To support people who can't fully express themselves in their religious communities, you can donate to Footsteps, which is a New York City-based nonprofit that helped Abby. Also, definitely make sure to read Abby's book, Becoming Eve. If you liked what you heard, you can rate the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at PeoplePlacePower and support our production fund and read more on PeoplePlacePower.com. Thank you so much for listening and see you in a week.